0: My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church. And this morning, I have the joy of opening up God's word with you. Would you open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 4? I'd like to tell you the story of Karen You probably have never heard of this woman before. I'm going to call her K.W. from now on so I don't mess up her name. Uh, She was a professor of chemistry at Dartmouth College. She was the founding director of Dartmouth's Toxic Metals Research Program. In 1997, at the young age of 48, she became ill and eventually died. And here's how it happened. KW decided to go to the doctor because she had lost about 15 pounds over the course of two months. In the weeks following her initial appointment after doctors could not figure out what was necessarily going on, she began to lose coordination in her upper body. Her walk became imbalanced. Her speech slowly became more and more slurred and she couldn't control her handwriting any longer weeks go on and she begins to develop a tingling at the end of her fingers that keeps getting stronger and stronger she starts hearing a sound of white noise in her ears and the noise gets louder and louder and louder over the course of months her vision begins narrowing and narrowing to the point where all she can see is just a small circle in front of her Uh, eventually they did some blood tests and blood tests revealed a blood mercury level of about 4,000 micrograms per liter, which is 4,000 times the upper limit of normal. The upper limit of normal would be one microgram per liter in her body, 4,000 times what was in her body. So here's what the doctors knew. They knew that KW had mercury toxicity. So she tried to relive the past months thinking how could I have possibly exposed my body to this? I'm careful. I work with toxic metals for a living. I go above and beyond. She finally realizes and remembers about three, three weeks uh, prior to her first, first visit, um, she had, was in the lab and she spilled what's called dimethyl mercury on her hand, which was covered by a glove. It was just a couple drops, but it got on her, and she wiped it off pretty quickly, completely innocuous in her mind, walked away from the event, thinking, I'm just fine. Elementary mercury is a metal, uh, dimethyl mercury is a liquid, and it's powerfully absorbent, and when absorbed into the skin, it happens in seconds, um, and also goes right to your brain, which is about 60% fat, and it goes to all of your fatty tissue, embeds itself there, and is actually very hard, if not borderline impossible to get out when certain levels are met. But something wasn't right. It was five months past exposure and the symptoms should have been going down, the symptoms should have been normalizing, she should have been getting better, but she was dying. She was not recovering, and the doctors were trying to figure out what happened to KW. So they took a hair sample, and here's what they found by measuring her hair sample and the mercury's half-life five months after exposure. They found that she was exposed to 1,440 milligrams of dimethyl mercury, four times the lethal amount, 16,000 times the upper limit of normal. So to put this in perspective for you, she would have to eat 144,000 pounds of salmon in one sitting to get that much mercury in her body. So dimethylmercury is three times more dense than water, um, and about two to three drops of this on your skin contain this lethal dosage. Here's what she didn't know. She didn't know that her gloves um, were not protecting her against dimethylmercury. In fact, the dimethylmercury went right through her gloves within a a matter of seconds onto her skin and her skin absorbed all of this. And about three weeks later, she began the symptoms of uh, of mercury toxicity. It's interesting because three other people have had this experience and guess what happened to every single one of them? They're all dead. Two drops, that's it. It's insignificant, and that's what she thought. It was just another day in the office, she spills something in a glove, she goes on. It's not that big of a deal, right? There are some experiences that your body and your soul are not created to be able to endure. Some of you have gone through these, right? There are some experiences that humans go through, whether it's two drops of dimethylmercury or something that is done to you that your body and your soul they're not created to endure. Now, I want to propose something to you. Um, when you think about dimethylmercury, you think about something that you're, you're, obviously, now that you hear this story, right, And you hear the horror that this woman went through, um, how many of you want to go play in a pool of dimethylmercury? Anybody? Anybody? Right? And you just think about two drops. I mean, if you saw two drops of dimethylmercury on the ground, how many of you would go clean it up? I wouldn't. I would call somebody way smarter than myself to have them go address it. And I want to make a proposal to you, and I want to make this proposal, is that unrepentant sin is like dimethylmercury. It should be something that when we find it, we run as far away from it as possible because from the outside, it just looks innocuous. It looks like it's not that big of a deal. It's just not going to harm you that much. But what you don't realize is that sometimes when you just dabble, it can destroy you. And you tell yourself, it's not that big of a deal. It's just two drops. It's just a forbidden fruit. It's just this. It's just that. But I think what scripture tells us is that when you get to unrepentant sin, this actually becomes one of the most dangerous things that a human being can encounter. And I was thinking to myself, God, why is it that even unrepentant sin in my life, like I can look at it and be numb to it for a season of time. And and I think the Lord's conviction on my life was you don't understand its power and its potency. I was watching this video on KW and I was just blown away and I thought this is exactly it this is we underestimate its power we think we're protected and really the gloves she had on gave her a false sense of protection. Trained professionals now know better they know the quiet power of dimethyl mercury and I'm telling you if you are a pastor a counselor or a human being who pays half attention to the world around you you can see this there is a quiet elusive and destructive power of unrepentant sin in our lives so open up your bibles genesis chapter 4 verse 17 point number one and your notes is what satan began sin is going to finish if you're new with us we're in a series in genesis 1 through 11 and we're going to be in chapter 4 last week we finished the story of cain and abel uh, in case you didn't know cain killed abel things did not go well for him uh, now, if you're looking at your Bibles in front of you, um, I want you to notice something. Um, as you're reading this, there's somebody that's ominously missing from these chapters that played a pretty, pretty pivotal role in chapter 3. Who, who would that be? Satan, that's right. He, he's, nowhere, he's nowhere to be found. And here's, here's what you find. Satan doesn't really have to waste his time with non-Christians. I'm going to tell you Why? Because he may begin this process, but he understands the potent power of sin to finish well without his attention what he began. He understands, and he doesn't underestimate the absolute power of sin once it has infected a human being, for that sin to take them down, because it has a power in a life. All of its own. My fear actually is that one of the reasons Satan doesn't waste a lot of time with many believers is because we really just allow sin in our lives, unrepentant sin. And he's like, you know what? I don't even need to worry about you because I know that inside of you will take on a life of its own and it will do everything I needed to do, I wanted to do in the first place. So I'll go worry about believers who are actually living in repentant sin, if you will, because we're all sinners, right? But the difference is, are we in a state and series of repentance where we go before the Lord with our sin and our shortcomings and we own it and we seek to change and we seek to bring it before him? Those are the people that are actually the greatest threat to him and this is why if you're living a life where you're following God, expect spiritual warfare. This is just easy. If you're making a difference for the kingdom, expect spiritual warfare. If you're killing sin in your life, expect this. Um, Satan wants to stop you because you are of great threat to him. If you are apathetic and you're allowing sin in your life to go on unattended and unrepentant, honestly, expect that there won't be a lot of spiritual warfare because sin will finish what Satan himself has begun inside of you. So now if you look at Genesis chapter 4 and 5, you're going to notice genealogies. How many of you are excited to be in a sermon on genealogies? Yay! I love genealogies. Um, in fact, uh, this week I listened to a couple sermons just for fun on the genealogies in Matthew because I'm a genealogy geek. But um, I want you to notice a couple things. So um, we're going to cover a lot of ground, but we're not going to go through every verse. I want to show you some things. At the end of chapter 4, um, you're going to find one genealogy. This is going to be the genealogy of Cain. In his genealogy is going to lead to its inevitable conclusion, which is serial murder. You're going to watch that. Uh, in chapter 5, you're going to get a second genealogy, which is the genealogy of Seth. Adam and Eve bore Seth after Abel was murdered. And so you're going to find that uh, chapter 4 ends with the, with, the, with the genealogy of the lineage of Cain. And then chapter 5 begins a new genealogy. This is going to be the line of Seth. And the line of Seth is going to conclude with the Messiah, Ultimately, Now, you're not going to get there in Genesis. you got to keep reading throughout the Old Testament to get there. But this is the line that is picked up, and this is the line that's going to bring us to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Two drops of dimethylmercury. One bite, seemingly insignificant, of a forbidden fruit. It's not that big of a deal. So I want to show you this on a macro level and a micro level. I want to show you... I would say the unexpected and the very fast moving effects of sin in Genesis 4. Uh, three, four, and five. This is actually pretty profound to watch. On a macro level, here's what you find. Um, Check out this picture. Once sin begins, uh, what you find is that the age of the people living begins to decrease and that as sin comes into the world and takes over humanity and powerfully affects them, their lives are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Now, that's kind of a macro level. You just see the death rates start to decline um, pretty much exponentially once we get down to about the eighth, ninth, tenth generation. Uh, Now, let's look at this on a micro level. What I want to do is um, I want to read for you um, what I could find. Every sin that we could find, and I want you to just listen to the sins from Genesis 3 and 4 and 5, and I want you to listen to the, uh, we'll just say the acceleration and the effects of sin in people. What starts off as not that big of a deal, just two drops, just one bite of a forbidden fruit, it begins to take a life of its own, and it's actually really sad to listen to. So Genesis 3, I'm just going to read them off to you in the order that I found them. If you have other ones, feel free to share with me afterwards, and I'll include them in second service. Eve forgets God's word. Eve doubts God's word. Eve ate the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. Adam abandoned his spiritual leadership. Adam deflected responsibility for his own sin to Eve. Eve deflected responsibility for her own sin to the serpent and even to God himself. Both hid from God. Genesis four, Cain held back His best from God in worship. Cain allowed jealousy to consume him. Cain ignored God's loving word and warning. Cain spoke dismissively and disrespectfully to God. Cain murders his brother. Abel. Cain does not repent. Cain leaves the presence of God. Cain's children do not call on the name of the Lord. Three murders are recorded. Cain's descendants take Cain's unrepentant sin to new levels. Lamech murders a young man. Then Lamech murders an older man. Then Lamech brags about how he retaliates 70 fold and kills people. Retaliation now becomes the norm in society. Multi generational and rebellion to God exists, and God worship is now rare and almost non-existent in the world. It's just two drops. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a forbidden fruit. Do you see the acceleration of this? And this is really one of the most amazing parts of, the, uh, of, of Genesis chapters 3, 4, 5 6 all the way to 11 is you watch the world degenerate and what the what the narrative is telling you is that you and I can never underestimate the power of sin because it has a life of its own. It is one of the most powerful forces. And here's here's an emerging I'd say principle that Genesis starts to show us and it goes like this. Sin doesn't just consume you, it causes you to consume others. And this is where everything goes wrong. Like we think it's just about me, but what we don't get is that when sin is left unattended inside of us, it doesn't just consume us, it it, it subverts us. And then what happens is that humanity doesn't just turn in on itself, but it turns in on one another. Satan consumed humanity, Adam consumed Eve, Eve consumed Adam, Cain consumed Abel, Lamet consumed others. And by Genesis 6, you get this such a sad statement that the only thoughts of their heart, this is all of humanity, it seems, but no, the only thoughts of their heart are only evil continually, like a powerful statement that it's all about me and they will devour or kill or retaliate against anybody in the process. Now, you and I, we don't have like a category for this kind of experience because we live uh, with the residue of a Judeo-Christian ethic which has protected us culturally on so many levels. But before law, before the Judeo-Christian ethic, before um, we'll just say like people following God and um, the world was a very, very dark place in this time and it grieved God and it hurt him. We're watching the aftermath, honestly, of a seemingly like not that big of a deal sin. And it ends up with everyone in the world only doing what was right in their own eyes, only evil continually. Two drops of dimethylmercury. It's just a forbidden fruit. It's not that big of a deal. Um, I want to show you just a, a big picture of a genealogy here. And I want to just highlight some stuff for you through this. Um, this is uh, verses 17 through 22. And uh, you just get this bigger picture, right? And you look at this, you are know, like Cain knew his wife and she bore Enoch and when he built a city, blah, 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 and name and name and name. How many of you like stop and really, really read genealogies? Like five of you are going to raise your hand, right? We got one here, right? And, like, we got two and three, right? We got a couple, and usually, you don't stop to read genealogies until somebody really teaches you how to read a genealogy because they are exhausting, okay? Um, and you're trying to figure that out to stop. And if you don't like math, then you have to start doing math and counting numbers, and it's all this crazy in it. I want to draw your attention, though, to a few things in here because... Um, I think in the, in the process of talking about the realities of sin, it's easy to overstate the case on one level. Uh, and I, I want to show you a few things here um, that happen. So let's look at verse 17 for a moment. Uh, in verse 17, here's, here's what you find. Go to the next slide for me. Um, it says, when he, Enoch, he built a city. So this is the line of Cain. And none of these people are calling on the name of the Lord. And that's what's important for you to understand. The line of Cain does not follow God, okay? They've rebelled against God, and they're doing their own thing, and, and so this guy, he built a city, and then verse 25, verse 20, we have Jabal, he's the father of all those who dwell in tents, he basically develops probably the systems of agriculture and farming and all this other cool stuff, and then we get this guy, his name's Jubal, uh, and he is the father of those who play the harp and the lyre, kind of the first rock star of his day, if you will, right? And he's a musician, and, and who knows, maybe he created the instruments, but God put music in the hearts of men, and these men uh, came together and they developed instruments that allowed them to grow in excellence and skill and the people rejoiced and they came together around music, two Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron and here's what, I, here's what I love and I don't want you to miss as decrepit and deceitful and sinful as their hearts may have been the image of God has never left them And we have innovators, and we have creators, and we have geniuses, we have mathematicians, we have really amazing things. And I'll just give you an illustration of this. Um, uh, Often, I'll, I'll, I'll have this thought, I'll drive down the road, anytime I'm in downtown Chicago, anytime I'm in a city with big buildings, and I look at these buildings and I just think to myself, people are incredible. Uh, I think to myself, every building represents a person with a vision, creativity, innovation, courage, uh, the ability to sacrifice resources or the ingenuity to accrue and gather resources to do this really cool stuff. Like every time I see any small business, I think to myself, like having started a small business in my family, like I understand it's hard work to get something from nothing to something and then to make it profitable. Like I get that. I see that. I look at all these thousands and thousands of small businesses and then the rare businesses of the ability to grow grow and grow like I just appreciate that and you don't have to be a follower of God to be able to build something and to be creative and for the image of God to be expressed in you. And this is what I love. I love looking at people and I love seeing the image of God all over them. They may reject their creator, but their creator's stamp is on everything they're doing. And I love that even sin does not eradicate the image of God in people, but it is alive and people are doing some pretty incredible things. I often think to myself, man, if we could take that innovation and creativity and we could take that boldness and that courage, uh, we could take that strategic mind and apply it for the kingdom of God, that could be an incredible thing. And so oftentimes we look at people and we just look at them through the lens of their sin. I think there's another opportunity, which is to say, man, like God is still speaking through them and we see God's heart even in the way they do different things. I love that. No matter how dark the sin, God's image is still on that person. And then there's Lamech. Lamech drives me nuts. Look with me at verse 23. Lamech is overcompensating, trite, frustrating um, I don't know if my wife's in the room, but if I ever talk like this, um, shoot me. Um, I have killed a man. Who says this? Who talks about his wives like this? Here's what he says. Ada and Zilda, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Brian. hear my voice, you wife of Michael. Like, <laughs> it's so stupid. Listen to what I say. Shut your mouth. I'm about to talk, right? I have killed a man for wounding me. Just full transparency, sometimes like when I teach, I bring you into like, what really goes on in my mind when I read stuff, I think to myself, what a loser, really? You're that guy? You're that guy in a bar who's like, you look at me the wrong way, what, right? Like, really? Like Nobody respects that guy at all, nobody thinks he's cool, right? And here he is, he has no self-perception, no, we all think you're a loser, why are you doing this? I've killed, that's honestly with their memory, I know it's not the most gracious thought all the time, but I'm candidly telling you I don't like this guy. I've killed a man for wounding me. Not just a man, like, okay, man to man, right? You threaten me, we get in a fight, right? Plot your gun, whatever, draw. But now it's not just that, it's a young man. Like a young man looks at him cross and he kills him. Like you see a level of darkness and maliciousness and serial murder, like this is not okay. And then he brags even more, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, like if Cain will do that to his brother, I'm gonna step it up. Lamech's is 77-fold. I think this is just a, great, just a great moment to stop for a moment and, and say to anybody who's never trusted in Christ in this room, this is why your friends and your family so badly want you to know Jesus because we know the power of sin. We know the destructive power of sin and there is only one release and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to kill sin, cut it off at its head, and to give you control back over it other than through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's it. Uh, Your friends don't want you to come to Christ because they want you to become a clone or because they're trying to control you or put a notch on your belt. If they love you, they want you to come to Christ because they understand the absolutely devastating power of sin and it has already separated you from God. And now they want you to know God and have the power of the resurrection so that sin no longer has to control you. Believers though, uh, unrepentant sin will control you. Uh, there's, there's, there's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll, I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what Paul says. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And here's what he's saying. Leaven represents sin here. And he's saying it just takes a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit for it to do its job, which is to change the dynamic of the entire loaf of bread or to change the dynamic of the entire person. And, and here's his Here's his plea. If you find it in you, it is so devastating and so destructive. Read the book of Genesis. Just look what it does to humanity. Now take this microcosm, this micro picture of yourself. An unrepentant, unattended to sin in your life, this is what happens. This is not legalism. This is a pleading for your life. This is not creating rules so you can be a good boy or girl. This is about killing sin because sin's objective and nature is to kill you. Do you see the difference? Like this isn't about here are five times to be the best human being and to be a little good boy Christian. This is about not giving sin the ability to kill you and then kill the generations that come after you. I wanna show you another picture here and I want you to just stop for a moment. I want you to think if you were Adam, how devastated would you be to watch the lineage of Cain, so ingenuitive, so creative, so innovative, taking over the world, building cities, all for the glory of themselves as people murder each other. Now, many of us, we have this idea in our brain that Cain or that, that Adam was uh, just dead and all these other people were born. Um, actually, what's interesting is this, this line here represents all, the black line, all of the people who were alive. When Adam died, Adam lived for a long time and was actually able to see all of this disaster and chaos in his own lifetime. It's actually a really sad thing, but it just reminds me of the two greatest deceptions. Number one, it's not that big of a deal. And number two, I am way too far gone for God to fix this. I'm just telling you, Village Church, the amount of times I hear this from people, I am too far gone for God to fix this. I just wanna look at you and say, point number two in your notes. (laughs) What sin ruins, Jesus can restore. What sin has ruined, Jesus can restore. And we get to chapter five. And I love this because it's just like a hard stop. And then you get to see the line of Seth. There's hope, right? And you get to see the line of Seth. And and, and this is just a beautiful part of the story. Now, for some of you, um, this is going to be your story. It's not your story yet, but it's going to be. For some of you, this is your story. Sin ruined you and Jesus restored you. Uh, For some of you, um, you don't have a perception yet of sin ruining you, but this is a message you need to put in your pocket because one day you're going to do something really dumb and you're going to need to know that Jesus can make this thing right too. So for those of you who are like, I know better, whatever, like you need to take stuff like this and you need to remind yourself there may come a day when you really, really mess up and you're going to need to be reminded that Jesus Christ can heal and redeem and restore any level of stupidity that we do. Uh, So here's a theme in Genesis and then you can kind of see this theme here on the screen, there's always someone set apart, and there's always someone in opposition. So you have Adam and Eve set apart, you have Satan in opposition, you have Abel set apart, you have Cain in opposition, you have Seth who's set apart, and you have everybody else in the whole wide world who is in opposition. And and, and you got to ask yourself, why, why is God preserving a line? Why is he so invested in genealogies and lineages? Why is God plucking out these families. I'm going to tell you why he's doing it. Because sin is so powerful that unless God plucks someone out and changes their generational trajectory, sin is so powerful, it will just win. And so God is up to something bigger. Even before creation, he implemented the plan of redemption, which means he was going to prepare for the Messiah, who he had a designated time and space time in history, was going to be born. And so what he did is he plucked out a line, and through this line, he made sure that not just a family, but a people group would be preserved so that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, could be born. You can't ever look at a genealogy in the Old Testament apart from the bigger plan of what God is doing, which is preparing a family line to prepare for Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to look at verse 25 um, with you and uh, here's what it says. Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And she said, God has appointed me for another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh and this is the line that I love and this is how chapter 4 ends it ends with optimism and at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord here's what I love two things number 1 you you can be the generational change like you are not obligated to follow the sins of your mother your father your grandma your grandpa your great grandfather your great grandma etc cetera, etc that Jesus Christ gives every single person the opportunity to set a new trajectory through faith in Jesus Christ. And I love this too, that no matter how bleak and how dark the world gets, this genealogy tells us something really amazing, that God is always gonna preserve a remnant God is always gonna preserve a group of people who are faithful to him, who call upon the name of the Lord. And there are gonna be some of you, you're gonna find yourselves in places where it feels dark and you're wondering, is there anybody, is there anybody who's gonna call on the name of the Lord? And then you have to remember, you're there. So the answer is absolutely yes. There is somebody who's calling on the name of the Lord. And these genealogies just scream to us through history and they encourage us that, you know what? The world is going to get darker and darker and there are gonna be ebbs and flows in history and sometimes history gets a little better and sometimes it gets a lot worse. But God, no matter what happens through the course of history, he will always have a remnant. And he will always, always have a people who call on the name of the Lord. You go to verse 22 and we meet a guy named Enoch. How many of you know Enoch? I love this guy. Enoch walked with God. What's the theme in Enoch's life? He walked with God, right? And that's his theme, right? If you're in a genealogy, and you had this awesome privilege to get like a, a one-sentence line about you other than who you begat and how long you lived and how long you died, right? Like, other than that, if you get, these are like gold. Like, oh my goodness, I'm in the genealogy with an explanation. Like, Enoch is pumped. Enoch walked with God after he had fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Like we joke and say, the first rapture, right Right there. Um, we don't know what happened. We don't know the details. We don't know a ton about it. But here's what we know. God was like, look, there's something about you. You're amazing. I'm just going gonna, gonna to take you now. Um, and this is just a, an incredible um, articulation of what happens in the line of Seth. In the line of Cain, nobody's calling on the name of the Lord. But in the line of Seth, we have these uh, men who are plucked out and they are calling On God's name, he's preserving a remnant. Go to verse 28 with me. It says this, when Lamech, this is a different Lamech, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah. Guess what, we're getting to the flood. This is all coming up in the upcoming weeks here. And here's what he says. And I want you to hear this statement as the overflow of expectation that one day, the promise made to Adam in Genesis 3, that there will be an offspring of Adam and Eve who will crush the head of the serpent, right? Like There is this longing and expectation that one of these descendants is going to be that guy. There's just an optimism that the curse of the ground and the curse of humanity is going to be reversed. And, and there's this high hope for Noah out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Um, uh, these are just some highlights in the genealogies, but I want to share with you um, one just, uh, I think, really important um, thing and it really answers the question, why all these genealogies? Like, if you ever known? they're all over scripture. Here's the first one. I'll give you five just highlights of genealogies. In tribal communities... Your identity was bound up in your lineage. Like these are your people. Uh, your lineage often determined what you did for a living. Uh, this is your heritage, it's your identity. Like if you're in a tribal community and you're like reading the Bible and you see a genealogy, you stop and you are super interested. We, we don't care about genealogies. Our identity is in our work, not our family, right? But for them, their identity is in their family. It's in their family name. It's a very different culture. And so many cultures around the world, when they get to the genealogies, this actually makes a lot of sense for them. And this was very, very meaningful for each person who would read their genealogy. Number two, the genealogies draw a direct line from Adam all the way to Jesus Christ. Um, This is very important because the whole point of the scriptures is to build up to Jesus Christ. This is it. Like When you're reading the Bible, if you don't understand that its trajectory in the Old Testament is to get to the Messiah, we've kind of just missed the bigger picture of the whole game here. And so every single genealogy is going to tell you at the end of the day something about the line. It's going to let you know what's going on. It's going to build its way to Jesus Christ. It's powerful. Genealogies, number three, they also confirm prophecy. Um, So many prophecies are bound up in these genealogies, and you get to see from generation to generation to generation how the prophetic words are fulfilled they remind us that, honestly, our life is not about us. Do you ever just read how fleeting these lives are? Like, this is a powerful statement. Like, our lives are short and they are fleeting. And at the end of the day, even though our name might be in there, our name is ultimately not about our name. It's ultimately about how we point people to Jesus Christ. And there's a powerful statement in genealogies. Every time I read them, I think to myself this. I exist to point people to Jesus Christ. That's why I exist. I exist to point people to him. And finally, they represent this, that God cannot be stopped. It does not matter how bad the world gets, God is going to build his people. And in the same way that God relentlessly brought a Messiah into this world, is the same way that God gets the job done. And he even gets the job done through non-Christians or non-God followers who are in these genealogies, does he not? And so God is going to do what God does. And I'm just reminded, I'm like, wow, God, you are up to something. It's all about Jesus. Um, I am significant. But my main purpose here is to point to Jesus Christ. Like, the genealogy has become a really, really important reality. Now, prior to Christ, uh, your physical lineage was of utmost importance. And it's still important. Don't get me wrong. My mom and dad are here. <laughs> They're here. i not going to disparage that. But after Christ your spiritual lineage takes on a new importance. Spiritual families are set apart for the glory of God. And what's so beautiful, and there's so many in this room, it's when your spiritual family and your physical family converge, right? And, uh, you know, there's always gonna be Lamechs, there's always gonna be Enoch's, there's always gonna be Cain's, and there's always gonna be Abel's. Um, and historically, the Lamechs and the Canes outnumber the Enochs and the Abels. Um, historically, you're going to find, uh, no matter where you're at in the world, by and large, the vast majority of humanity have experienced that they're not, they're not in the majority seat. There are probably more non-Christians around you who don't think like you than there are Christians, but you and I were plucked out. You and I were set apart to carry on the lineage of the people of God, And so I want to close with just a couple questions for you and an encouragement. I want to talk about your spiritual genealogy. Who's your spiritual mom and dad? Because this is actually a New Testament theme that becomes really important. So I had the privilege of having my spiritual mom be my biological mom. Four or five, I don't know, a long time ago. Many of you have had that privilege. I've had the privilege of seeing my dad come to Christ. Eighth grade, right, ish, something. (laughs) You know, that, that's beautiful for me. Who's your spiritual mom? Who's your spiritual dad? Who brought you to Christ? Who came over your life and mentored you and taught you the foundations? So, village, we're talking genealogies, you know, whatever. Like, let's get really, really practical. Who, who is it? And I love in Jewish culture, there's such an honor given to your, to your lineage. There's an honor given to your spiritual parents and grandparents. Who brought your spiritual mom and dad to the Lord? That's actually a question worth asking. It's interesting because I've mentored a lot of people, and very rarely do the people I mentor ask me questions, (laughs) you know? But there's something to be said about getting to know your spiritual lineage. It's a very beautiful thing. We have Ancestry.com, and and, uh, we're, we're investing a lot of money into that, but there's something really powerful, that there is a legacy that goes all the way back to Jesus Christ, who was the first and foremost to proclaim the gospel, and he brought 12 men, and they proclaimed the gospel, and throughout 2,000 years of history, it landed on your mind and your heart and your lap, and you heard the gospel, and you believed. Who is that person? Who is your spiritual family? Who are your brothers and sisters? Let, let me dig down deeper. Some of you attend Village Church, but it's not your spiritual family, and you don't have brothers and sisters who are unconditionally loving you and engaged in your life. Maybe it's your community group. But this, this is a question. You don't just have a spiritual mom and dad. Uh, you, you also have spiritual brothers and sisters who are in your life. Many of you are in transition and you're trying to find that out. Maybe you, your church closed or something happened and you, you find yourself here and you're like, I gotta figure out who my spiritual family is. Like when we, when we get up, by the way, just so you're aware of how this stuff works, and we're like, hey, there's a women's tea coming up. This isn't because we're bored. It's because we're trying to help people find their spiritual family. Do you understand that? We're trying to do anything we can to help you connect to other people so that you can grow spiritually and thrive. Like This is what we want from you. we we don't do picnics because we're like, oh, let's just eat a bunch of food. Like, we do picnics because we want to have fellowship together and we want to encourage people and we want to be able to build into that family. Uh, That's why we do community groups. Like, again, like, sometimes I think, like, people think, oh, the church just wants me to go to their stuff. I'm like, no, we want you to know Jesus and to know your family and to grow and to thrive and that's what a lot of this is actually about. Here's a question. Um, For some of you, you'll know exactly what I mean, but this will convict you intensely. Who are your spiritual children? So, If I were to ask you this question, are you mature in the faith? Most of you would say yes, and then you would say yes because of your knowledge. I want to say this: mature people in the faith are mothers and fathers. You hear me? Maturity. You've got to kill this notion that it's directly connected to how much I know or how much I give or how long I've gone to church. Now, those are things mature people do, but the height of maturity is being a disciple who makes disciples. Who are your spiritual children? And it starts with your actual children, by the way, and your grandchildren. Start there. You can be mature and put a lot, a ton of energy into those kids because that is of utmost importance. But who are your spiritual ch- children? What is your spiritual lineage? Are you willing to step back and honor them and to call that out Are you willing to give away what you have received? Somebody believed at the right moment that you needed to hear the gospel and they had the courage or the guts to tell you. Are you willing to have the courage and the guts to tell someone at the right time in the right way in your life and maybe you just might become a spiritual mom or dad in that moment, isn't that cool? Uh, The Apostle Paul picks this up. 1 Corinthians chapter four. It's a really beautiful theme and I want you to see this. I'll put this on the screen here. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. And again, uh, the goal of a preacher isn't to shame you, it's to propel you. That's the goal. Um, But to admonish you as what? As my beloved children. This isn't just like, like hyper-spiritual language, he genuinely perceived himself as a spiritual father to these churches. And he says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, and that's good, it is good to be a guide in Christ, it's good to help people, to come alongside of them in these moments, you have a crisis, so let me help you, but if a spiritual father and mother, it's a little bit different, it's a little bit more intentional. And he says, you don't have many fathers, for I became your father through blood, well not physical, the blood of Christ, in Christ. Through the gospel, when you trusted in Christ, I became your father and became your father not just because you became a Christian but because I invested in you, love this. He says, I urge you because guess what? Who do you urge with the strongest urgency? Your children, right? You're like, oh, please don't do that, right? And so, like, here's what happens. Like, I'll I'll tell you, like, uh, I have a friend coming up and I was his his mentor. I I was able to see him come to Christ and I was his mentor for a few years. And uh, and so he's coming up and I think, in two weeks. And I gotta tell you, I've never pleaded with anybody quite more than I pleaded with this kid, right? He's a man now with a kid, you know what I mean? But, I mean, I would plead with him and he's like, why are you so hard on me? I'm like, why are you so stupid, right? I'm like, ah, why am I talking like that? I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, I love this, my beloved and faithful child in what? In the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Village, we're gonna celebrate communion here in a moment, and and I just wanna ask you, have you been plucked out? Have you been adopted into God's family? Um, Communion is for you. Uh, There are some deeper questions here, and communion is not for everyone who has just nailed this spiritual family thing, okay? Let's be clear. Um, I, I was getting ready for this message, and this morning I went through it again, and I was convicted on a couple things, and, and uh, so I, I stand here as a brother in Christ, first and foremost, who um, is, needs the cross more than ever. I need to be reminded of what Jesus did for me more than ever. There are ways this sermon has pricked at my conscience and my heart, and I want to change, and there's some things I want to adjust in my life because of it. I want to read more genealogies and not just pass them by right now. Um, But uh, if you've trusted in Christ, and you've been plucked out, and you've been brought into his family, um, I want to invite you in a few minutes to participate in communion with us. And as you think about your failures, as you think about stuff that inevitably comes up in a sermon, man, I wish I could, I wish I could, why didn't I, I don't know, I'm frustrated, right? Here's a great, I say this like most weeks when we talk about communion, but Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. There might be some conviction, there might be some pushing, there might be some shoving from the spirit inside of your, goal, your heart, but there is now no condemnation And so all the areas that you sense you're falling short, you're like, I've never made a disciple. I've never honored my spiritual parents. I honestly don't even have a spiritual brothers and sisters in this place. I do trust in Jesus Christ. And now you're sensing that the Lord is pushing you to something maybe a little bit deeper. I wanna tell you, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, I wanna invite you to partake of communion with us. There's some of you here, and every week there are people trying to figure this thing out. You're like spiritual family, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. That's all like so weird. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to trust in Christ yet. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, communion is something we ask you um, just to not partake of. Because when you partake of communion in Village, if you're a believer, don't, don't zone me out right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you partake of communion, this is a powerful statement and declaration that you non-verbally are making over yourself, which is, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe I'm a sinner and that he died for me in my place, that God the Father raised him from the dead. He's coming back. I believe I'm not condemned. I believe that despite how dumb I am, I am loved and that the Holy Spirit is changing me and transforming me into the image of Christ. I've got a long way, but I'm safe and I'm secure with God in the process. Like, there's a lot of declarations that you make in this. If you never trusted in Jesus Christ, it's fine. Nobody will judge you. Just let the elements pass. And so very simply, um, we're going to celebrate communion at the end of the service. We're going to talk about some other ways um, that we can respond even to some of this stuff. But here's how we do it. We're going to have just some time of silence, uh, opportunity for you to reflect, um, talk to God, confess, thank God. Uh, My prayer is always the same, that when things are quiet, that the Spirit would speak truth to you, that he would encourage you and convict you, that it wouldn't be lopsided, that you wouldn't experience condemnation and shame, but truth conviction, but also encouragement in that time. Um, What's gonna happen is I'm gonna pray, um, the band we're gonna sing, and the ushers will hand out elements. So the way the elements go is we go from front to back. So when you get the element, stand, and you'll see people stand from front to back. At the end of the song, we're all going to partake of the elements together as a symbol of our family, of our unity, that we are one family through the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's take some time and let's just um, talk to the Lord and listen.